Join me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast to hear fascinating stories every week from the inspiring people behind the science. In this episode, hear how cycling and golf leads to trade association and architecture awards as Executive Director and General Counsel David J. Sutton walks us through his story. Hi, David. David Sutton. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, now, David, you're the Executive Director and General Counsel at CIFA. Um, CIFA being the Scientific Equipment and Furniture Association, um, which might make people think you do have more of a scientific background, but in actual fact, you're coming at this from the from the legal angle, having been at law school in New York City, which sounds incredibly glamorous and <laughs> very indeed. Um, so, um, which, which law school was that? I mean, how how did you how did you get into law? Was it always a dream? And and then it would be interesting to hear how the where the science came in from that. Well, uh, first of all, Harriet, thank you so much for inviting me to join your podcast uh, today. Um, you know, having met you in Dubai, and um, I, I immediately accepted your invitation to <laughs> be part of your podcast. So so. So it's good to see you again. Um, <laughs> kind of you. Yeah. So, um, you know, interestingly enough, when I started undergraduate school, I originally majored in psychology. And um, after doing that for about a year or two in undergraduate school in the United States, it's four years of undergraduate school and then another three years of law school. And then you have to take this terrible nightmarish bar exam at the end of your three years of law school. Um, but originally I was a, a psychology major. Okay. And then Watergate happened in the early 1970s. Nixon was president. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of things that were going on in our country, in the United States, about impeachment. And there were lots of legal proceedings. And I kind of realized, you know what? It's really the lawyers and the legal process that controls everything when there's a real crisis that happens. And so I switched majors. I went from being a psychology major to being a political science major. And that is usually the natural you know, stepping stone to going into law school. Mm -hmm. So you're studying political science and government and, 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 and how it works. Um, and then after uh, my undergraduate uh, uh, degree was obtained at uh, University of Massachusetts. Um, I then took a year off. I went to Europe, rode a bicycle through through the UK, through France, no and into Italy. Very interesting, you know. Actually, I purchased the bicycle that I rode in in London, uh -huh. and um, and then took a train to. I think it was Southampton, UK, and then took a ferry to Saint-Malo in France and got on my bike and started riding through France. And it was kind of an interesting experience, but that was something I really wanted to do before going on to law school. And this was, and, a, uh, this was a bicycle, not a, not a moped or anything, an actual push bike. No, it was a 10-speed and the name of the bicycle was a Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. I don't know if they still make it. 
Oh, no but idea. I remember that it was it was great, and I had a backpack and you know all kinds of things. So I was raring to go, and uh, I wound up being in the south of France, and uh, and then eventually made it to to uh, to Florence and to Pisa, and it was just a great experience to to go through the first of all to go be in the UK, and then go to France, and then and then to wind up in Italy, and somehow I made it back home. Yeah. I don't quite remember, you know, the flight and where I was, where I was uh, left from, but uh, it was, it was a great experience. But then I went to law school and, um, you know, I was interested in being what we call a litigator, which mm -hmm. is somebody that goes to the courtroom and, um, you know, uh, people that like conflict, that like to argue and be argumentative you know those typically are the natural type of litigators and I was I was like that uh in my 20s and so that was a natural progression of things is to is to focus on being a litigator and and, and trying cases and things like that and um, while I was in law school I started reading the Wall Street Journal every day it was like one of those things that I did other than studying and going to class and so I became very interested in business and how business worked and both the legal aspects of it and just the, from the standpoint of managing a business and what goes into successful companies and, or, and companies that fail. And so once I graduated from law school, I, I did something, again, a little unusual, and that was that I opened my own law practice Right like, out of loss, right out of law school. And you just don't do that. You know, Ali you know, it's like a very crazy idea, but that's what I did. And one of the reasons why I did it was I was working through law school. I needed the money. I was working at a law firm that was uh, located close to where I was going to law school. And they were litigators. And so by the time I got out of law school, I had like two years of really solid experience being in the litigation field. And I would go to court and go to clerk's offices all over the New York City area. And so I kind of felt like, you know what, I think I can do this on my own and and, and start a law practice, you know. Oh. And I remember like the very first day, um, I had a file cabinet in this little office, inner office, no windows, and there were no files in the cabinet. And I had a telephone on my desk and I was waiting for the telephone to ring. And eventually it just started to happen, you know, and I was doing all kinds of stuff, but then I started to focus on doing business law and litigation. And my first um, corporate client, business client, was a manufacturer of laboratory furniture based in Brooklyn, New York. He was also a close friend of mine. And he started giving me some cases to handle from his business. And they had about 150 employees and it was a very well-established uh, metal laboratory furniture manufacturer. And um, so I got familiar with that, that business. And I was a tennis player in college played had a scholarship in undergraduate school I played tennis but when I started going to law school I started playing golf and so this corporate client I met playing golf 
And he said to me once in 1988, he said, listen, I have to go to this meeting. Uh, why don't you come and play golf with me? And it was a meeting in Florida and it was in the spring of 1988. And that was the very first meeting of SIFA. Little did I know that that was why I went, you know, he was going to a meeting and he was one of the founding members of this organization, the Scientific Equipment and Furniture Association. And I started going to those meetings that were twice a year in all these beautiful golf resorts in the United States. You know, there was one meeting in the spring and one around November every year. And I got to meet the people that were involved in that in that group. And it, you know, consisted of other laboratory furniture manufacturers. And it was a small group. It was about 12 members that used to come to the meeting. Um, eventually, I said to my friends who I was playing golf with at these meetings, I said, you know, we really should have like a golf outing. It shouldn't be just the four of us playing golf. We should invite others. So I became the tournament golf director. Okay, of SIFA. And and we took the golf very seriously. It was kind of funny how things have evolved over time. But so, you know, I would collect $50 per person. Even back in the, you know, that was a lot of money, even in the, you know, in the, in the early 90s. And um, I would pair up the players, you know, uh, two man teams. And we'd have this like three day tournament that would go on. It would go on for three days. We'd meet for like two or three hours a day. And um, and then on a Saturday night dinner, I would dole out the prize money and everything else. So it was really kind of a cool thing. And it, oddly enough, the golf kind of kept the group together. Yeah. You know, so people enjoyed the golf tournament and everything else that went with it. So so that was a so that was a lot of fun. But eventually you know, it came a point where they were like, we need to get serious about doing other things for the industry to benefit the industry as a whole. And so they wanted to know from me whether they could write industry-wide standards for laboratory-grade furniture. And I still have, I, I, I gave them an opinion in 1990 at one of these meetings. It was actually in Puerto Rico. It was kind of cool. Um, and the conclusion I had in this memo was that, yes, we can do it. We can write industry rights, white standards, even though we're a very small group. As long as we give the rest of the industry the opportunity to be heard, even if they're not members, and to contribute and make suggestions about these standards. And that was a big turning point in the history of CIFA. You know, now all of a sudden it was not just, oh, well, that's a fun social group and they stay at these wonderful golf resorts and their lawyer actually runs a golf outing. You know, it was now, oh boy, they're writing, they're going to start to write industry wide standards. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that would interest other laboratory furniture manufacturers to, to join CIFA because it was like, well, you know what? I need to be there, I need to be heard. I want to make sure my product is being adequately represented and everything else. And we would do this thing where we'd send out a draft of a standard for, say, laboratory casework. Okay. And we'd send it to non members of very well established companies that weren't part of CIFA. And we would send it to them and go, let us know we're having a meeting, you know, in a few months, you know, at this, you know, resort. 
And sure enough, they would show up and eventually they would join. And so, you know, CIFA started with 12, 15 members and it was a small U.S.-based group. And it started to expand from there and, and to the point where we're now 161 members from 27 different countries. And it just sort of, it, it evolved over time. And it's kind of an interesting story about how that all came up, came about. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. And I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about two things that I've now called cosmic coincidences. And I'm gonna give you the I'm gonna give you the first one, and then we'll talk about the second one later. It has the second one has to do with the lab of the year competition, but the first one has to do with the beginnings of CIFA. So. You know, when you form a trade association, and it's a not-for-profit in the United States trade association, and basically that means that if you make a profit, you don't have to pay taxes. But as long as what you're doing is for the better, the betterment of the industry and society as a, as a whole. So the purpose of CIFA, when it was founded in 1988, was to encourage the use of safer practices in laboratories to make labs safe. And we know now that having a safe lab is very important, okay, in the world. It can lead to certain things happening. And um, so in the organizational documents, the word safe appears throughout the documents, safe labs, safety, everything else. Well, this group, including my first corporate client came up with this name, the Scientific Equipment and Furniture Association. You know, it's a mouthful, you know, but then we always shortened it to CIFA. But it wasn't until 2001, I was walking down the hall in my office in New York and realized that the letter CIFA only spell one word in English, and that's the word safe. So it was an incredible coincidence that this happened. Right. And I always kind of and I always kind of joke around that the guys that formed CIFA, you know, in 1988 were not clever enough, nowhere near clever enough to know that CIFA would spell the word safe, and safe was probably the most important word in the organizational documents of, of CIFA. So so that was interesting. And then we just trademarked internationally the expression that CIFA spells safe. And so that's a trademark that we've had since 2001, 2002, you know, that that was one of those things. But I call it one of those cosmic coincidences, you know, when, when we're talking about CIFA. So the meetings, once, once we started to focus on standards, the meetings kind of changed in, the, in what was going on. I no longer had time to run a three-day golf outing. I was lucky if it was even one day because what happened was the people that would come were a little different. So in the beginning, it was the CEOs and the presidents of the companies and they bring their wives and the wives would play golf in the morning at these beautiful resorts and we would play in the afternoon and, and it was great. But they were really not the people we needed to write standards because they didn't have the technical knowledge that some of their other employees had. So we started focusing on writing standards and the entire like 
complexion of the group changed. We went from being the CEO group to being the technical people writing the standards and we would spend an entire day doing this. And I remember one CEO came to a meeting, he had missed a few meetings and he came to a meeting and you know we're sitting in a room. By now there's like 50 people in the room, not 12. And he turns to me and says, David, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and I'm like, Bob, this is new CIFA, okay? CIFA Classic is over. We're really getting a lot of very serious work done. And he, I don't think I ever saw him again in a meeting. He's like, I'm not coming to these meetings anymore. This is terrible. But it actually was very, very important for CIFA and, and the way and the way it evolved over time. So, so it was really good. Um, so that was our principal focus starting in say '92, right into the 2000s, early 2000s, and things like that. And the group began to grow. We began to admit people from overseas, companies from overseas into the group. That was a big deal, you know. And some Canadian members joined. And then a, a couple of, a few companies from Japan came in in the early 2000s. Um, we then said, you know what? We should have the architects and the lab planners who specialize in designing these beautiful lab buildings. They should join us. So we had them join us and we, we called them associate members. Now, during the 90s, I was not running CIF. I was not the executive director. It was somebody else. It was a woman uh, named Joan Powers, but she was kind of getting into sort of retirement mode. I was general counsel. And in 2001, they asked me to become the executive director and general counsel of CIFA. So I started that believe it or not, right around 9-11, you know, so, you know, there was, there was all of that disruption and what was going on and the terrible tragedy that was. In fact, in my town in Garden City, New York, where I lived at that time, we lost about 60 people that day at the World okay. Trade Center. Yeah. Wow. So it wasn't, un it wasn't uncommon in New York to have these communities where they lost a lot of people just in one day. Um, and, you know, it kind of really hit home. Um, but I remember we, in, believe it or not, November of 2001, two months after the tragedy, we had a, we had a meeting in San Antonio, Texas, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty tough and security was difficult and everything else. So, you know, we continued on. And like I say, we've been through like many presidents, we've been through a bunch of wars and we've kind of persisted and, and, and moved on. And in 2008, we were having a meeting in San Jose, California, and there was this big meeting going on in Shanghai. And I said to the board of directors, you know what? I should go to Shanghai, go to this uh, conference called Analytica China. And, you know, I've been very fortunate because the board has allowed me to do these things and take these initiatives. And, all right, David, if you think it's the right thing to do, then go to China. You know, we don't know what you're going to do there, but, you know, figure it out. And so in September of 2008, and if you can remember that period of time, that was when Lehman Brothers was going down the tubes. AIG was in trouble. Bear Stearns had already gone out of business in I think February of uh, 2008, it was a very strange time to go from California, San Jose, 
what Florida, San Francisco to Shanghai and go to this meeting. I didn't really, I didn't know anybody. We had one Chinese member at that time. And I decided to have like a dinner reception for people in China that made laboratory furniture. And I walked around this massive trade show with invitations to come to this dinner. Uh, you know, on one side it was in English and the other side it was in Chinese. And, um, you know, the reception I got was kind of interesting. You know, the Europeans were there and the Europeans were like, no, we have no interest in being a member of SIFA. You know, we know what you do, but, you know, we're not interested. Um, the, Chinese, the Chinese people were like, why would I want to sit and have dinner with my competitors? You yeah. know, and I, and I, you know, and I just said to them, I said, well, you'd be surprised. You'll learn things. You'll have, you'll have common problems that mm -hmm. maybe we can solve for you, you know, and, and whatever. So, um, Interesting that difference because I mean nowadays it's completely a, a complete given that people want to collaborate. Yeah, and I and I also think in China I would say the idea of a trade association of uh, competitors, you know, uh, was something that was unusual for them, especially since it's not like we're not government controlled or even monitored for that matter you know if we do something wrong yeah we'll, we'll get in trouble but um basically they you know at least in the united states they kind of let you do your thing you know until something bad happens like you tr try to fix prices or something but um so it was you know it was a, it was a challenge to try to convince people to come to the meeting um and 110 people showed up <laughs> so it was it was quite amazing to have that kind of turnout you know for the first time that i'm there and not knowing anybody and you know we made a um, i made a presentation about what seep is and what we do and you know sort of a year in review kind of thing like i still do now at, at these trade uh, trade shows and um and so it was it was really it was really quite interesting but what I remember the most was something that happened before the presentations. And that was that it was like a buffet dinner and it was all set up, you know, a certain part of the room. And there were these tables, round tables of 10 or 12 people. And um, I got up and through a translator, you know, welcomed everybody and said, uh, okay, we're going to have dinner now. And, um, you know, after dinner, I'll make a presentation. So enjoy the food, whatever. And nobody got up. And I said to the translator, I said, what's, what's wrong? What's going on here? And she said to me, oh, David, they would never all get up at the same time. You have to tell them in what order this is going to take place. So once I said, okay, the table over here to my far right, we're going to start with that table. And we're going to go table by table by table. And that's how it had to happen. Wow. Now, that's that's totally different. Because in the United States, people basically, they see food, they eat food. They don't want to be invited. They just, I don't know if it was like in other parts of the world. But let me tell you, in the United States, we don't need uh, to be told who's getting up first. We're all just eating food and everything else. So, so it was all really quite interesting to do that. Um, and then in 2009, in... Um, 
in January of 2009. So that was September 2008. Then in January of 2009, I went to Arab Lab for the first time in Dubai. And again, I was like, okay, you know what? And I told the board, I said, listen, that show was pretty good. I had 110 people. I think I should go there and check that out and see who's there. And they were like, yeah, go ahead, do it. You know, same thing at a dinner reception and everything else and um, had a good turnout. You know, as you know, you probably sense Dubai's a great place because the world meets there. You know, the people from India are there, the people from China are there, the people from Europe are there. You know, people come from all over the world to meet in Dubai. Um, it's very convenient. I always like to say it's very convenient for everybody except people in the United States because it's a 14-hour flight for us. But um, so I was going to Analytica China every year. Uh, it was a show that happened every two years. And Arab Lab was every year. So I would go to those shows routinely and develop relationships in China, in the Middle East. Um, there's also a very big show in Frankfurt, Germany called Akima or Akama. And that's every three years. And so we do we we do uh, presentations there and, and everything else. So I started kind of traveling um a lot, wherever my members were gathered, you know, in a large enough number, I would go to those places and support them and have these receptions and things like that. And eventually I refined it because it was like, I used to have architects come and they used to give a speech and make a presentation. This is after a long day at the trade show. And I, you know, there was one point I saw people falling asleep. I was like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. They just want to drink, they want to eat, and they want to network and talk to people and that's what they want. And so that's what it is now, you know, it's, it is become just a tradition where they expect Sifa to have this organized reception for everybody. Mm -hmm. And we don't charge any money for it because it's, it's part of your dues as a member. And so people just show up, you know, my biggest problem is trying to guess how many people showing up, actually showing up, you know, I've done okay over the years. Um, I haven't had a disaster where I thought 100 people were coming and 50 come, or I thought 50 were coming and 100 were coming, actually came. Uh, it's, it's worked out just fine. But interestingly enough, because of all of this outreach to the rest of the world and our trademarking the CIFA logo and certain CIFA um, phrases and things like that, we became really known throughout the world. And um, and so it started to grow very quickly. And we went from, you know, there was a point we were like 15 members, like I said, then it bumped up to 50. And through our efforts in China and in Dubai and whatever, it went as high as pre-COVID 175. You know, we were up to 175 members and uh, it's come down a little bit because of COVID and some of the issues in the Chinese market and things like that. But um, it really, really took off. And I knew that we had become influential, really influential worldwide. When I saw a contract or proposal for people to bid on a very large project in Kuwait, and there were like five qualifications you needed 
to be qualified to bid as a laboratory furniture manufacturer for this massive project in Kuwait. And one of them was you had to establish that you were a CIFA member for at least five years. And mm -hmm. I was like amazed. I was like, wow. Like we have gotten that influential that people in Kuwait, the government of Kuwait, thinks that CIFA membership is that important. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't want to even talk to anybody that's not a member of CIFA. That's extraordinary. It's a, it's, I mean, it just shows how relevant the organization has made itself and how actually needed it was in 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 the sector. Um, I just wondered if you were involved from a safety point of view in uh, anything that went on in China around the time of the pandemic breaking out, or was it completely shut off? Like, okay, that's not an area. Well, well, um, I was there in November of 2019 at a conference. And, um, you know, there was nothing on the horizon. Things were not quite normal um, in China at that po point in time. But um, by, you know, January of 2020, you know, we started hearing things. And, you know, in, uh, you know, February, March, things started to hit, you know, the United States. And, you know, basically the world was shut down uh, for a year or two. So, so, so it was difficult for us, and it's a and it's a very sort of sensitive topic, obviously about the origins of COVID, and where it might have happened and things like that. You know whether you know whether it happened in a lab is one possibility, of course, and you know to me, it just shows the importance of lab safety. First of all, lab safety practices amongst the people that work there but also having the proper design of the laboratory, uh, putting certain equipment in certain areas and not in others, um, making sure that the furniture is uh, sturdy enough and, 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 and it's robust enough to work. You know, one of the things that our members make are fume hoods or fume cupboards. And, you know, a fume cupboard has to work properly because that's where there's a lot of experimentation going on inside those those fume hoods, and if the gases and other fumes are escaping, um, you could injure workers, you can, you know, things could, could get pretty ugly. So, you know, we always knew that safety was a, a, a of prime importance in a, in a laboratory environment. Um, you know, I think it's probably the first, it should be the first consideration whenever you're talking about what, what happens in a lab, and it starts with the design of it why the architects are so important yeah and 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 speaking of that so you know i mentioned the fact that you know we changed our bylaws and our bylaws changed a lot you know and as the attorney i had to write the, the necessary language to do that and um you know what we did was we decided that if we're going to allow the architects in the decision was made to call them associate members. Well, that didn't go over really well with the world's leading architects. Like, really? Associate membership? Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> and then we were charging them a nominal annual uh, uh, dues and stuff. And and I was like, you know, folks, we don't, first of all, we don't need the, the dues. It's not important. You know, our 
manufacturers pay enough dues to support bringing the architects to the meetings. And I said, we need to do something different. And, you know, I have the minutes from the meetings back in 1988, 1989, and the minutes always talk about how are we going to get the architects and the lab planners to come to our meetings? And, and we always struggled with this. And, but it's very important that they're part of the process, you know, to talk to the manufacturers, what are they looking for? What do the manufacturers have to offer and things of that nature. And so I proposed to the board and once again, you know, I've been really lucky that they've supported these things that I said, listen, let's not call them associate members. Let's call them advisory board members. Much better sounding, you know, and we don't need their nominal dues. Okay. I hate to lose one of these really important architects because there's a problem getting that small dues amount. I said, we don't need to charge dues. And I'll go one step further and say, listen, we'll actually pay for their travel expense in their hotel to come to our meetings. And that was really big in the development of CIFA that, and this happened in like 2015 or so, that we created this new class of membership called advisory board members. And now it's become like this select group of between 15 and 20 of the world's leading architects and lab planners. So it's become super important to CIFA. And there's been a lot of things that happened as a result of that. You know, sometimes the, you don't expect it, but they became very involved in writing standards with us. Mm -hmm. and, and they would tell us, listen, there is no standard for this particular product. For example, seating, like what makes the seat laboratory grade? So they were like, David, if you don't mind, can you please organize a, a laboratory grade seating committee and we'll help them write that standard so that when we specify seating, we want it to be laboratory grade. And so we're real good at that. You know, we're real good at identifying what needs to be done, what committees need to be formed to create a, labor a laboratory grade uh, standard, and then we do it. And we're, and we're, and, and it, you know, it, first of all, it brings in more members because all of a sudden, people that make seeding that has been sold to laboratories now want to be part of that process of writing that standard. Mm -hmm. So that has become important. We've done that with a lot of different products. Like right now we're in the process of writing a laboratory grade standard for flooring. Once again, what makes it laboratory grade, you know? And so this became really important um, to the industry and, and the architects usually tell us these things. They usually say, listen, David, you know, we're ordering flooring and we don't know why it's in the lab, whether it belongs in the lab. You know, you can listen to the hype from the manufacturer of the flooring, but doesn't, you know, CIFA should write a standard for that. So we're in the process of doing that. I love how this so, is as well. Sorry to interrupt, but, you know, there's a lot of times where people go, oh, there's no guidance on this and they turn directly to government. And there's and there's no appetite. Yeah. There's no appetite in industry for people to get together and do the slog to bring such a thing to life. It's it's so nice to hear. Yeah, and I, you know, I tend to call it, I don't want to sound too jingoistic, but I tend to call it the USA way. You know, 
it's sort of like, let's get it done, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And yeah. let it not be that it's a top-down approach to it. It's more of a bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. You know, let the manufacturers work with the lab planners. And by the way, and the end users. Mm -hmm. And let's come up with a standard that makes sense. Because what we do, and this goes back to that legal opinion I wrote back in the early 90s, is what we do is we write what's called consensus standards. So it's a consensus of the people that are going to be most affected by the standard. And do they agree that this is an appropriate standard and does it make any sense? And so if the standard doesn't address the issue and doesn't make sense to the industry, I call it, you know, passing the straight face test, you know, you know is this just sort of a self-serving document? Or is it really for the betterment of the entire industry and the people that work in labs and things like that? It wouldn't be accepted. It's a voluntary process of accepting our standards. And we've been pretty successful at getting acceptance and buy-in all over the world on those things. Well, indeed, as and, said, they wouldn't. five years of membership was a prerequisite. It's amazing. It's amazing, you know. You know, there was a time in um, for about 10 years or so between 2000, 2010, 2015, 15 years, 10, 15 years, where we actually were rejecting half the companies that wanted to join CIFA because it's not like most trade associations are, oh, you want to pay dues? You're in. You don't have to show any qualifications to be a, a member. And so that was sort of kind of, you'd say, short-sighted. But in the end, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to CIFA because we only wanted companies with experience in doing what the what the members do um, that have references, that they can provide trade references, that can provide a letter of recommendation from an existing member. And so the application process is is pretty difficult, you know, for trade associations, you know, most times you could just fill something out online and, and say, I'm ready to pay my dues and they'll let you in with us. It wasn't like that. And so because we were rejecting so many companies for a while, it was almost like the sense was in the marketplace. Oh, they basically pre-qualify companies to bid on work. And so that takes place all over the world is that you have to show you're a CIFA member. And um, my assistant, Barbara Carr, who's been working for me for 25 years, uh, first as a paralegal, but now as the assistant executive director, she came up with this idea of like, I think every year when they pay their dues, we should give them a new certificate of good standing as a member. Well, that document has become really, really critical. Because people have to, companies have to submit that when they submit a bid on projects like, oh, I'm a CIFA member in good standing, you know. So it became a big deal. Um, so, so that kind of, you know, it kind of made it interesting the way the whole thing evolved. And when we say you have to show that you make a, you, you know, that your product is laboratory grade, we really mean it in the sense that we now have approved test labs all over the world. And you have to go to one of those approved test labs 
and test your product independently, third party through that test lab. And then Barbara and I get those reports. And if we uh, agree with what the report concludes, then we will put that product by model number on the CIFA website to show that indeed that product is laboratory grade. Okay, we deem it to be laboratory grade. So there's on the CIFA website, cifalabs.com, there are a number of charts based on products that have been third party tested. And when we did that in our bylaws and said, listen, you can't be a member of CIFA unless you make at least one product that's laboratory grade. We actually lost like 15 members just like that because they couldn't do it. They couldn't show that made one product is laboratory grade. And you know, my view was if we think laboratory grade product is so important, why do we allow someone to be a member of CIFA and they don't even make one product that's laboratory grade? That doesn't make any sense, you know? And again, we took the hit financially, but we were okay with that. We felt it was more important to do that, to take that stand and to and and and, and to kind of stand on principle, if you will, um, when it came to when it came to that. Um, so nobody, nobody's in CIFA right now that doesn't have at least one product that's that's laboratory grade. So that's yeah. that's worked out really well for us in the end. Again, long term thinking um, worked out for us uh, very well. Indeed. So do you want to you want to know about the second cosmic coincidence? I do very much. Okay. So we always co-sponsored. It was called the R&D Lab of the Year competition. We co-sponsored it. We promoted it. We encouraged our members, especially the architects, to submit projects and everything else. And R&D also owned this um, magazine or newsletter called Laboratory Design. And eventually it went from being R&D Lab of the Year. R&D. Yeah, R&D Magazine. Yes. Yeah. Research and development, or was it something else? Yeah, research and, you know, R&D is sort of the catchphrase for research and development. Sure, for sure. So, yeah. So, and then it became Laboratory Design Lab of the Year, which was just um, a magazine that was owned by the R&D group of companies. And um, and Laboratory Design, uh, unfortunately, R&D and Laboratory Design eventually went bankrupt in um, 2019. Um and I and I said to the board, I said, listen, I think I think we're the ones that should take over Lab of the Year. You know, I think I think that you know this thing has been going on since 1967. It's been it's been awarding. You know, building got awarded every year since 1967, and we don't want to see you know just end. And I had a lot of support from the lab architects and lab planners. They're like, David, this is CIFA should run this competition. And I go, okay. And um, there was a guy who bought the rights to lab design. It's questionable whether there was any rights to lab of the year, but um, I, had a, I had a lunch with him uh, in New York City at my favorite steakhouse in New York City, Del Frisco's on 6th Avenue, or Avenue mm -hmm. of the Americas, phenomenal steakhouse. And we sat there at lunch and I said to him, I said, listen, I'll support what you're going to try to do at Lab Design, the conference, the trade show. In return, we're going to take over, you know, Lab of the Year. It costs money to do it. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of problems and everything else. But I said, 
you know, we'll, we'll take it over. And so that's what we did. So starting in say January, 2020, we took over lab of the year. So, and the idea was basically that the advisory board members were going to control this thing and be part of it. They were going to, there was no question they were going to submit projects. They had lots of big projects and great projects. But if you were, if you were not involved in any way, shape or form with one of those projects that's been submitted, you could act as a judge. So a lot of times our judges consist of advisory board members that don't have a project in the running for the competition that year. And, uh, and then we pull in other people too. So the first meeting that we had of judges had to be done virtually. That was the summer of 2020 because of COVID. And it was like, hmm, okay, I don't really like this, but what are we going to do? People couldn't travel and whatever. Summer of 2020, pretty bad. And so the first project that got awarded was the Rockefeller University River Campus Project, which I talked about in Dubai. And people were so fascinated with the idea of buying air rights in New York City. A lot of questions you were there, you know, about about all that. Um and all the tax implications of donating money to universities and things like that. Yes, um, by the way, air rights, because it doesn't really affect anyone except the people who can afford for it to affect. Yeah, yeah. And it may affect somebody's view, but they, you know, the idea is uh, we want to build something, you know, a building and we want, we want to be able to build it up. And that's the way it goes. But it's kind of funny because the air rights with Rockefeller University, that building is kind of low slung, you know, overlooking the East River and over the FDR Drive, but it seemed to work out just fine. Um, so in 2021, you do it every year, the judges meet in September, typically, and they were all over the world and the country in the United States. And they said, listen, I went to this hotel called the TWA Hotel. It's between Terminal 4 and Terminal 5 at JFK Airport. The lobby used to be the TWA Flight Center, okay? It's that winged building, you know, it looks like wings. It's a very famous design. And I was like, this is really the most convenient place to convene the judges meeting to decide who the lab of the year would be in 2021. And, and I had looked at that building because I'm always looking for spaces and stuff and things. And I had lived in New York, used to fly in and out of Terminal 5, JetBlue. And I was like, wow, this is a great spot for conferences and meeting space. And so I was like, okay, folks, we're gonna, we're gonna go to the TWA Hotel. And there's a museum inside the lobby of the hotel at this TWA Flight Center which is where the lobby is. And they built like two wings off of it, you know, with hotel rooms, which by the way, they'll rent out. Like if you're in JFK airport for 12 hours, they'll rent out the room for 12 hours, you know, and go, to, go take your flight. You don't hear any planes because I've stayed there a number of times because they have the soundproof glass for the, in the hotel rooms. It's really kind of cool. But there's a museum there. And they're honoring two people in the museum. One is Howard Hughes, okay, because he started TWA Airlines. 
And, you know, that was kind of his baby. And, you know, don't forget this beginning of intercontinental transport, you know. I mean, it was revolutionary to think that you could fly from New York to Europe, you know, Paris, you know, on a passenger plane at that time. And um, so they were honoring him. And there's some memorabilia of Howard Hughes stuff, lots of pictures. And then they're also honoring the architect who designed the flight center. And he also designed the arch, the arch in St. Louis, you know, that big arch, St. Louis, which is sort of the gateway to the West, you know, from the Mississippi River. So he is famous. This architect is famous for these two things, among amongst other things. So his name is Eero Saarinen. Um, I believe he's from Finland, but he lived in Michigan. Don't ask, you know, these things happen in the United States, you know, people come from all over the world and they, you know, he winds up in Michigan and he becomes a world renowned architect. And there's this beautiful museum. This is drafting table, the original table where he would draft all his designs and stuff. And so here's Howard Hughes hiring Eero Saarinen in, it was like, I think it was the late fifties to design this TWA flight center. And the flight center then didn't open up until the mid sixties, but it took a while. And the whole hotel is sort of honoring these two people and they have restored the flight center the way it was back in the sixties. And if you've ever seen the movie, Catch Me If You Can um, with Tom Hanks and um, who else is it, Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, there are a lot of scenes that are shot at the flight center you know if you ever see that movie you'll see that kind of 60s style and so at the flight center they play beatles music and all the music from the early 60s it's kind of a cute thing that they do so anyway i'm looking at all of this and then i look at the history of the lab of the year don't forget we're we're now there with the architects and so the very first Lab of the Year winner was, the building was a Bell Labs building in New Jersey designed by Eero Saarinen. Holy Wow. Crazy. And I was like, oh, this is really, really a cosmic coincidence. It once again. Yeah. And... And then, you know, so Howard Hughes died as a you know, very wealthy, wealthy person. And he created this foundation. And in, I want to see if I can get the, the right date here. Um, so in 2007, the winner of the Lab of the Year was the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Virginia. So the Howard Hughes connection and the Aerosarinin connection to Lab of the Year is quite eerie. And, you know, meeting at the TWA hotel, and I use that kind of as my staging area. And you know, I moved down to South Carolina, I go up to JFK, I meet with barbers still in New York, I have meetings there, and then I fly somewhere overseas and things like that. So it's really kind of funny that um, how this all became such a, a strange coincidence. And I always give the judges, usually architects, a book about Aerosarinin, which they all love, okay. you know, because they they sell at the bookstore at the at the flight center and everything else. So it's it's kind of interesting how it evolved, and now we've taken over the lab of the year, and 
you know, as you know from my presentation in Dubai, these tend to be, I'll call them mega buildings. They are. Funded, funded by billionaires. Just, there's no way around this. That's the way it's been since we've been doing it. But like even back in 2007, you know, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, they have billions and billions of dollars to mm-hmm. spend. Um, and, you know, it's his Howard Hughes money from the TWA you know, days to the days where he owned casinos in Las Vegas and things like that and whatever else he was doing. So so all of that is kind of an interesting coincidence of how things have floated around here, you know, between Erosarinin and Howard Hughes and, and the Flight Center and, and CIFA and Lab of the Year. And we're kind of just really proud of the fact that we've done this, where we've taken over this competition. And it really is an international competition. Um, you know, there have been winners from Saudi Arabia has won. The King Abdullah University of Science and Technology won. Um, massive, massive, like, city that was built for science and technology. Just an amazing project. The Francis, Francis Crick Institute in London won Lab of the Year. A uh, uh, CJ Blossom, which is a South Korean company, a uh, pharmaceutical company has won Lab of the Year. A building in South Australia, Somri, has won Lab of the Year. So, you know, we've got we got um, submissions from all over the world um, for, for Lab of the Year. And we're very proud of the fact that, you know, this is just an international competition that's known throughout the world. And it's a very um, prestigious award to get. Yeah. Certainly sounds like it's grown in stature over the years. I love those coincidences. They're delightful. Cosmic, indeed. Yes, cosmic. Absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, and that kind of takes us up to the present time. You know, we have a meeting, our annual meeting coming up November 1 through the 3rd in Orlando, Florida, at a nice resort. We do play golf now, but it's only one day. It's in the front of the meeting. The meeting starts after the golf outing. And, and I, it's great because I have renewed interest in, in the golf outing. Um, so that's a good thing. Right. But this is this is what we do at Lab of the Year. So we decided that the judges would decide who the two finalists are. And then we invite them to come and make presentations. And then after the presentations are made, the winner is announced of whose Lab of the Year is. The other finalist is, receives high honors awards award. And so we honor the architects, we honor the building owner, we honor our CIFA members who are involved in that project from the standpoint of supplying the laboratory furniture and related equipment and things like that. So it's becoming really a very interesting kind of must-see event, you know, where where people come in. And, and the more architects I bring in, the more the meeting becomes very relevant to our executive members, manufacturers. And so it's just, it keeps growing and I hope it continues to grow, you know, from where it was in 1988 when I I came to play golf with a client of mine to to now to see what it is. I am still the director of the golf tournament though. I've not lost that title. (laughs) (laughs) You hang on to that one. Yeah, I know. What do people need to do if they if they want to submit a building their lab their laboratory building for this so yeah so we make it very easy for people to do that 
We will open up the portal at the on the CIFA web website, cifalabs.com, um, sometime in in uh, March or April, and then they have from March or April until August first is usually the deadline to submit uh, a project, and you simply upload the um, the information that we need and and the pictures and the story about the project. Um, you upload it onto our website. There's a $450 fee to, to enter. Um, mostly it's done by the owners of the building or the architect will do that because the information that we need and that the judges want to look at, um, that information is basically is with the owner and the architect. They're the ones that know. And what we did was, um, again, the, gentle, the gentleman that won, the, how, the architect that won uh, in 2007, when he did the design of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute building, Janelia Farms, he also won the Rockefeller University Lab of the Year, River Campus, Jay Bargman from Raffaele Vanoli and Associates. Um, he agreed, it was very kind of him to do this, he agreed to allow us to show his submission for Rockefeller University to the world. So it's online so that people can see the kind of content that's required and then the beautiful pictures and everything else that's required to be, you know, considered a contender for lab of the year. So we try to make it as easy as possible. There are 12 separate criteria that uh, are looked at when, when the judges are looking at the buildings. Again, that's all online. Uh, we want to make it as transparent as possible for everybody in the world to see. And um, so that's how you do it. Now, if you remember, you know, I we I got that question from that woman that was sitting in the front in Dubai when I did the Lab of the Year presentation. And she wanted to know whether we select the project, like SIFA selects the project to be submitted. And again, this goes to that, you know, the idea, this is a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down. No, we don't select it. You do it. If you think you have a project that's worthy of consideration, it's all up to you. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're not going to pre-select anybody. We're, we're not going to do it completely like it's open to the world. And, we, and we've gotten projects from third-world countries, you know, Sudan and places like that. And, you know, they're... They, you know, they have a lot of issues that they have to deal with and address and, you know, in terms of um, air changes and air flows and lab buildings and stuff like that. But, you know, it's really nice to see that they have so much pride in the building that they were able to build mm -hmm. under their very difficult circumstances that they want us to consider for lab of the year. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It must be incredibly hard to judge when you've got factors like that to consider. Oh, gosh. It's uh, it's heart wrenching to see the challenges that they have and that you you know most of us just uh, take for granted. Yeah. What what are some of them? Can you? Well, well, they just have problems delivering electricity to the building on a you know consistent basis. You know, uh, water supplies, um, safety issues. You know, within the lab. Um, and things like that. I mean, there's just so many issues that they have to address. Like, it's pretty hard to consider trying to build a safe lab when you don't have a reliable supply of things like energy. 
and yeah. water, you know, just, just utilities, you know, air conditioning, heat, you know, things like that. Cause a lot of times it requires a controlled environment inside a lab space and they just don't have the ability and the infrastructure to do that. Extraordinary. We, we, so we, we don't really think about these things often enough. I think we take a lot of, a lot of it for granted just as well to be reminded now and then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, um, you know, with all the things going on in the world, you know, it's, uh, it makes it even, even harder, you know, to, um, to try to promote the idea of having lab safety, you know, within a lab being a, a primary uh, importance. Yeah. So you're, you've got your meeting in November that coincides with lab innovations, um, which is in the UK. And oh, okay. And um, that's uh, at that meeting, you're going to be deciding who the winner is of the 2023 award. That's correct. Yeah. We'll be able to find that where? Again, on the CIFA website? Yeah. So uh, it'll be on the CIFA website. We've also started a YouTube channel called CIFA Labs. So there are things on, on the YouTube channel. In fact, you should look at the video of the reception because once you see the video, you're going to want to come to the reception <laughs> next year. That's for sure. You're going to go, oh, I want to go to this thing. Good food, great wine, you know, good things to drink and just people having a really good time. I will look it up. I'll look. Thank you, David. It's been such a such a treat actually hearing you talk about how this um, how this whole project has come about and um, gradually established itself over over a sustained period and how it really is packing a punch still and growing even as we speak. It's it's been really really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining. Are you welcome, Harry? It was great to see you again and speak with you. Hope to see you again.